Welcome to the Resources for Integrated Care webinar series, Caring for Individuals with Alzheimer's Disease and Related Dementias. This podcast is excerpted from a webinar presented live in the fall of 2015. This webinar series is presented by the Lewin Group in collaboration with Community Catalyst and the American Geriatric Society and is supported through the Medicare-Medicaid Coordination Office and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. MMCO is dedicated to ensuring beneficiaries enrolled in Medicare and Medicaid have access to seamless, high-quality health care that includes the full range of covered services in both programs. To support providers in their efforts to deliver more integrated, coordinated care to Medicare Medicaid enrollees, MMCO is developing technical assistance and actionable tools based on successful innovations and care models. To learn more about current efforts, please visit resourcesforintegratedcare.com. In this podcast, Lisa Gwyther, Associate Professor and Co-Leader at the Social Work Clinical Practice in the Duke Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, will explore working with families after the diagnosis. Hi, thanks to our host for inviting me. So I work with families. I like to start from the perspective of the person. And just to let you know, I'm a social worker and my primary work with families is on the phone, in support groups, and in face-to-face -face consultations. Next slide. Just to point out that Alzheimer's is more than memory, but people with Alzheimer's, like this musician and founder of a famous folk music group, said he wanted to be treated like normal. Alzheimer's wasn't his whole life. He didn't want to be a case, and he wants to be re thought of in his typical identity as one of the ramblers. One of the goals in working with families is helping them understand how they can support the meaningful identity of the person. Next slide. The next slide is a historian uh, who had Alzheimer's for 13 years. And his most important comment was, I want to be part of something. We do wonder how things happen and why. He talked about a partial view, feeling like you're coming in in the middle of a movie and you don't know what happened before or what might happen next. They, we want things to be like they used to, and it does hurt. And I think if families understand that, they'll go a long way in helping their relatives deal with the disease. Next slide. I also like to prepare care managers for what they might hear from families. In general, families say there is never enough of me or enough of the quality, affordable help I need. And sometimes that has to be acknowledged with the family. Also, families are very put off by cavalier comments about people tell me to take care of myself, but they have no idea how to do self-care. Families also express real regret and sadness about losing their shared identity, particularly older spouses. Older spouses are also very upset sometimes about the person. They, one wife said, I need a Charlie app. He was the guy who did everything. I don't know how to do any, everything. There must be a technical fix. Or a daughter who says, I'm proud to be your caregiver, but it's something I do, not who I am. Next slide. Uh, the four basic assumptions, I think, that are important for all of us to understand as care managers, 
Family care affects all relationships within the family. It is rarely fair or equal. Many families see no choice in providing that care, so they may be reluctant or unprepared, and it will disrupt their lives even if they're well-intentioned. Next slide. What can families expect or what can you tell them? They're probably going to have to organize daily and readapt work schedules. For many families, the hardest part is finding, asking for, and using new help, solving new problems, and the hardest part may be making decisions and living with the consequences of those decisions. I tell people that dealing with relationship changes is expectable that your relationship will change, there'll be imbalances in the normal family give and take. You know, one daughter said that my mom always took care of my kids and took care of me. I'm not sure I can do the same for her. I prepare families for the fact that they will resent people who don't live up to their expectations. That can be doctors, that can be social service agencies, financial help, as well as the person with the illness and there's a lot of uncertainty. Next slide. What must families do? I think we have to be aware of what we're asking families to do in addition to all their other roles. They have to define and negotiate really complex and constantly changing situations. That's the nature of progressive illness. Often they have to perform physically intimate and even medically complex tasks they have to manage their own emotions. They're the ones that have to do all the changing to adapt to behavior and communication changes. They have to modify their expectations of themselves and of others. And all this time, they also have to capitalize on the preserved capacities of the person. Next slide. What makes this so difficult is it's a balancing act for most families. Whose needs? Because rarely do families have only one person in the family who is frail, dependent, or has multiple chronic illnesses at a time. So whose needs are we meeting? There's often competing loyalties and commitments to other roles, like your marriage, your children, someone else who's ill in the family. How long can we provide this level of help? How much help can we provide or buy or afford? And the key question is, how do we evaluate the risk of using or not using that help and the cost-benefit? Next slide. There are key decision points when families will approach care managers, social workers, people on the team. Those usually occur around changes in the person's handling of money, handling alcohol, driving, have dealing with travel. Often families don't even notice how impaired the person is until they go to visit someone else or stay, stay in a relative strange house to them. Or handling medicine. And I think families are least prepared for the fact that people who normally handle their own medicines either undertake or overtake medicine or decide that there's some new medicine that they will take a lot of, like vitamins or, or health food medicines that are not always benign. There are changes in safety, particularly if the person is living alone 
and help by the family at a distance, uh, particularly in regard to fraud, neglect, wandering, falls, exploitation, uh, for live-alones, as I talked about. Families come to us with lots of questions about HIPAA, about not having access to the doctor when they need to tell the doctor what's really going on. Families also come to us when they are resistant to recommended changes from care managers in terms of use of services or moves that the person needs to make. And certainly a key decision point is when there's illness, injury, or a change in the primary family caregiver. Next slide. How can we prepare families? I usually go through a sort of mantra. I remind families that new problems aren't necessarily related to what they did or didn't do. The person is unhappy because he or she is living with unwanted dependency that they don't think they really need. Um, and to remind families that it's easy for other relatives to second guess or criticize from a distance. They're going to have doubts because there's a lot of uncertainty. But I tell families that doing nothing is usually risky. I tell families that choices, options, and lives are different, and it's impossible to know what she would have done if your positions were reversed. And I tell people that it's very common for people with dementia to take out their frustration on whoever is there. They're unhappy, they're upset, they're confused. You're there, you must be responsible. Next slide. There are some hazards for families in making decisions, and I try and let them know about that. It is very difficult to make solid decisions when you're living with unrelenting serial crises, particularly multiple hospitalizations of someone with dementia, or if they're honoring old promises to always be there for mom or take mom in, and certainly if they're chasing the ghost of who the person was. This is the family who says, well, yes, as soon as dad says he would love to go to an adult day center, we'll be sure and call them. Well, dad is never going to say he wants to go to adult day. Often other relatives have conflicting perceptions or expectations of the family or the person. Families often are reluctant to use services because of control issues, particularly with care managers. And often families just don't have good choices. And all those affect family decision making. Next slide. So for early stage families, I think they need explanations. Why he's not himself. Why he seems to have lost interest, have a shorter fuse, or he'll never go anywhere and he used to be more social. Why she can still read my reminders, but she doesn't follow the directions why he'll go to the bank every day and still not pay his bills, or why people are complaining around him, or why it took her an hour to get to the beauty shop on the corner, or why he can no longer do minor repairs and we're finding that that's costly. So families need you to answer their direct question and relate it to the disease process. Next slide. In moderate dementia, Often families need help with rejection or resistance to help. Um, the person who says, I showered this morning when the family tries to gently remind them it's been a week. 
um, people get ideas stuck in their head and so they will constantly go to the store for Kleenex, go to the store for vitamins, check on things, search for things, uh, what I used to call rummaging and pillaging through the house looking for lost items. Families need to be prepared for the fact that even if the family's person is angry, he may shadow them into the bathroom, shadow them to the phone, and there's a real disruption of family privacy. There's some disinhibition, and so many people who were normally very careful about their diets will eat only sweets. There are misidentifications, you're not my real husband. There are confabulations, which are not lies. People are filling in gaps in their memory with something that makes sense to them at the time. Often people have delusions or false beliefs, usually the family theft or infidelity. And as Rob pointed out, there are visual spatial changes leading to falls and balance problems. Next slide. The key issues for social workers to, and care managers to deal with are safety issues. And I put financial safety issues ahead of everything because it happens early and it can affect the assets of the family for later care. And so you got to pay attention and find ways to work around a relative who lives alone and decides to pay somebody $1,700 to fix gutters that don't need to be fixed. Uh, they need to pay attention to driving issues. They're great educational materials I'll point out at the end. Um, they need to pay attention to medication management. Just because mom has a pill keeper doesn't mean she knows how to fill it anymore or that she knows what time of day it is to take the medicine. And I always encourage families to pay attention to over-the-counter and toxin use that may be misperceived, particularly um, cleaners under the bathroom counter that may be used for the wrong thing or ingested. Um, I always ask about guns, power tools, and kitchen and bathroom safety issues, and there are safety um, charts you can go through or reminders, questions to ask about things that could be a safety issue in the home, uh, but particularly guns and power tools. Uh, and certainly there are safe, there's a safe return medic alert way of identifying people who may wander and become lost. In North Carolina and many other states, we have a silver alert program where families can call immediately when someone's missing. And it's like Amber Alert, and there are billboards, and they find people, so it's worth it. But most families, as part of safety, have to figure out how they're going to monitor the person. That can be low-tech, like a, a bell on a door to let them know the person goes out, or it can be high-tech like GPS monitoring. Next slide. Some families will ask, well, how long can she stay home alone? And these are some of the questions you might ask a family in evaluating whether she can safely stay alone. To me, the most important thing is the medication management, whether she's going to leave the house at the wrong time and not dressed appropriately. Um, and the last one, available discrete surveillance. Some people really are able to stay safely in an environment where there's a lot of people in and out of the house and in the neighborhood 
who keep an eye out on them. Next slide. I think as care managers, we have to be aware that it's not just referrals, but what might the family, how might the family resist community help? Often there's stigma associated with using various agencies. Um, and urban legends or myths, like um, they steal from you if you use home care. Um, often families are resistant to using community help because of the cost or because they're preserving assets for their children or because they're saving for a rainy day and they don't realize it's pouring right now. Um, often it's their denial or poor judgment about how much help the person needs. Sometimes it's because we recommend too many changes to the family at once and they feel they're losing control. Or, and sometimes because it's overwhelming disclosure and assessment that bothers them and they're unwilling to have their privacy in, invaded. Next slide. How you can help is certainly to have family and person-centered information, which will need to be updated as their goals, as Rob pointed out, and priorities change. I think the kindest thing you can do is offer decisional support and acknowledgement that these are hard decisions, that people are imperfect, and that they're dealing with uncertainty. Help them deal with their feelings of failure, that they couldn't fix it for mom like they used to that their grief, that they're losing that part of mom they really miss, even though she's still with them. And sometimes just offering a fresh perspective or appraisal of their options and their adaptation can be very helpful. Next slide. What families need and prefer is reliable continuing source of information, help with symptom management, navigating health and social service system, and a criteria for evaluating quality, cost, and benefit of the services. Next slide. What families ask care managers, and these are the tough questions. I can't take it, not take it personally. Why can't she remember the good stuff? And how long will it be until what the next stage? And helping families negotiate those tough questions is part of a care manager's responsibility. Next slide. There are evidence-informed family interventions, as Rob pointed out, like powerful tools. Certainly treating depression and anxiety in the person or the family helps. Increasing pleasant events helps. Um, exercise, mindfulness, stress management, support groups, and respite. Next slide. Pleasant events is a, is a behavioral activation alternative for mild depression, just getting caregivers to acknowledge what they like to do and can do and increase the frequency and duration of the time they do that. Support groups are important because they provide practical consumer or place to share difficult feelings like failure or regret and express disappointment in those who let them down. Next slide. What we know about respite is it's the most preferred, least available, and least affordable 
and that timing, dosing, how much, the frequency, intensity, and quality will affect the use and the outcome. And by the time people need respite, they need a lot of other things. Next slide. I'm going to skip this slide and go to the next slide. In summary, I think we need to make no assumptions. Culture, as Deborah will point out, trumps everything else in what we recommend and how we assess families. I think it's important to offer something to do and more than one option. I think we shouldn't underestimate the power of our help on the telephone, in email, and in by providing hard copy of materials. I think we have to prepare families for the fact that their goals and priorities will change as the disease changes. We have to offer them previews with no commitments. And we have to offer quality services for what they perceive as the suffering of the individual. Next slide. These are some resources. Just to point out that there are a variety of resources for different families. Part of our job is to select what might be most helpful to the person at the time. And the next slide. There are online resources as well, and I've made those available through the website. For more information about this webinar series and other resources, including videos and podcasts, please visit resourcesforintegratedcare.com and follow us on Twitter at integrate underscore care.